Welcome to Half Hour of Heterodoxy. I'm Amna Khalid, the John Stuart Mill Faculty Fellow at Heterodox Academy. On this episode, a recording of our five-year celebration, a virtual panel event, What Should the Future of Heterodoxy Look Like? This event took place in December 2020. First, an introduction from Professor Jonathan Haidt. So in September of 2015, I co-founded HXA uh, with uh, Nick Rosencrantz and Chris Martin. Uh, Nick had just written a paper uh, noting the the absence of viewpoint diversity in law school faculties. Chris had written a paper um, noting the absence in sociology, and I was part of a team noting the absence in social psychology. And so we all exchanged papers and we thought, hey, this, this is actually a big deal. This is actually something across the university. And so we, we bought the domain name Heterodox Academy, uh, meaning the opposite of an Orthodox Academy. Um, and it was just a faculty affair. It was really just about what effect viewpoint diversity has on the quality of research among scholars. It wasn't about undergraduates. It wasn't about campus climate. Uh, so that was in um, September of 2015. And by Halloween of 2015, all hell had broken loose, uh, most notably at Yale, uh, which we might hear about later. Um, and uh, um, uh, it, it became clear that the problems of national polarization and the culture war on campus and the climate in classrooms that everything was interrelated. So what began is about a dozen faculty members just exchanging emails and blog posts. Uh, we realized this is a much bigger issue. And so we, uh, we opened up membership to all professors and then eventually to uh, graduate students and PhD programs. And then more recently to um, administrators, basically people who have a stake in the quality of of, of campus life and who want an open, uh, an open climate with, uh, uh, with extraordinary uh, free freedom of inquiry. Um, so we, uh, what began uh, as just a group of professors talking uh, became the site of, well, lots of interesting things uh, that we've created, uh, books, uh, events, uh, community groups. Um, and so those early days in 2015 and 2016, that was an extraordinary time, uh, equivalent in some ways to the late 1960s. There were so many events on campus. There were students shouting down speakers. There was an explosion of cancel culture. Um, there was even violence on some campuses. Uh, not much, thankfully, but there was some. Uh, protests involving long lists of demands given to college professors, college presidents rather. And the presidents usually gave in and they almost never stood up for their faculty members who were under attack. It was a bizarre time. Um, so Heterodox Academy has, has uh, grown a lot since then. We now have over 4,000 uh, members. Um, we are uh, politically balanced. We're one of the few organizations that I know of in higher ed where we have about equal numbers of people on the left and the right. We are uh, completely nonpartisan. Uh, we're not fighting the culture war. We're not attacking universities. Uh, that's not who we are and that's not the way to bring about change. We're united in our love of universities and in our desire to help them be their best selves. At least that's the philosophy that was developed by Deb Mashik, uh, who was our, our, initial, our first executive director from 2018 through this past summer. So we're very grateful for her leadership and for all she did to grow HXA. Uh, so if you're not a member, if you're joining us and you're not a member, we encourage you to go to the site and consider joining if you're a professor or grad student, and you can be a friend of HXA if you're in any other, any other category. Um, now, while our organization is just five years old, our core idea is actually ancient. It's the idea that viewpoint diversity is essential for the discovery of truth. We all suffer from confirmation bias and motivated reasoning. We need to engage with others who have a different confirmation bias and who do us the favor of critiquing our ideas and sharpening our thinking. So I'm just gonna read three quotations uh, to make the point. Uh, the first is from the 13th century, uh, Ibn Arabi, a Muslim poet and scholar who wrote, beware of confining yourself to a particular belief and denying all else for much good would elude you. Indeed, the knowledge of reality would elude you. Be in yourself a matter for all forms of belief, for God is too vast and tremendous to be restricted to one belief rather than another. Three centuries later, Rabbi Judah Lowe of Prague, 
uh, wrote, it is not proper that we despise the words of our adversaries, but rather we must draw them as close as we can. Therefore, it is proper out of love of reason and knowledge that you should not summarily reject anything that opposes your own ideas. Even if such beliefs are opposed to your own faith and religion, do not say to your opponent, speak not, close your mouth. If that happens, there will take place no purification of religion. And then the third and final quote from John Stuart Mill, the only way in which a human being can make some approach to knowing the whole of a subject is by hearing what can be said about it by persons of every variety of opinion. No wise man ever acquired his wisdom in any mode but this, the steady habit of correcting and completing his own opinion by collating it with those of others, so far from causing doubt and hesitation, is the only stable foundation for a just reliance on it. I love that line about collating our views uh, with others. Uh, isn't that what intellectual growth is all about? And isn't that what a university should be all about? Um, it's especially fun tonight because uh, Jeff Sachs is, is uh, here with us because a few years ago, he wrote a couple of essays questioning what we were doing at Heterodox Academy, saying we're exaggerating, the trends aren't that bad, let's look at data, let's look at the GSS data. And then uh, Sean Stevens and I had to respond to that and we had to dig into the data. And the, the back and forth that we had was just wonderful. I mean, it was like, that's what academic life is supposed to be. It shouldn't be about screaming and blaming and shaming. Um, and I've changed what I say about it. I've taken Jeff's uh, critiques into account and I think he's, he's uh, taken some of the things that I say. And so it was exactly the process that Mill said and we're, we're all smarter because of it. Thank you, John. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce our four illustrious panelists. Our first guest, Nicholas Christakis. A physician and sociologist by training, Nicholas is a professor at Yale where he directs the Human Nature Lab. Our second guest is Randall Kennedy, who is a law professor at Harvard. Also joining the panel is Jeffrey Sachs, a lecturer in politics and history at Acadia University in Canada, and last but not least, we have with us Nadine Strawson, former president of the ACLU. Nadine is a law professor at New York Law School, and she was named one of the 100 most influential lawyers in the country by the National Law Journal. My first question goes to Nadine. Why and when did you first begin to notice the lack of viewpoint diversity in higher education? I have been concerned about this issue for at least the last um, 20 years. I'm just guessing as seriously as far back as I can remember, uh, probably actually longer than that. Uh, so it was truly thrilling to me when I first learned about John Haidt's work and when I learned about the foundation of Heterodox Academy. Mind you, there are many wonderful organizations of which I'm a member and have, have been a leader that are doing similar work, uh, in particular on freedom of speech issues on campus. But the work that Heterodox Academy is doing is unique and absolutely essential to complement the work on free speech. Freedom of speech is a critical prerequisite but it is necessary, not sufficient, to have effective, constructive truth-seeking promoted on campus, the unique responsibility of universities. And I think the genius of Heterodox Academy and its founders was recognizing that we need to create not only legal protection for free speech, not only a culture for free speech, but a culture of truth seeking, which arises only from intellectual diversity and the other values that we've now started calling the HXA way, right? Um, that uh, in involve intellectual humility and, and curiosity, empathy, perspective taking, um, all of the qualities that will really make for a robust exercise of freedom of speech, specifically in pursuit of truth in research and teaching. Thank you, Nadine. Um, Nicholas, could you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in these issues? Well, I, I joined the uh, uh, HXA close to its founding in 2015. I, I heard about it pretty rapidly because I knew Jonathan and I knew 
uh, uh, Greg Lukianoff. And, and so I sort of joined the organization. I think I was like the 70th member. I, I wish it had been a startup and I'd been the 70th employee or something like that, <laughs> employee number 70. And you know, then I would have millions of dollars of stock options right now. But um, you know, I was very pleased to support the organization. But of course, my interest in the topic is not as longstanding as Nadine's, but reasonably longstanding in part because in 1995, I got uh, a research grant from George Soros to uh, a project on death in America to study how to improve the care of the dying. And I started paying attention to him, uh, George Soros, although I've never met him. And of course, he founded this organization called the Open Society Initiative, uh, you know, based on Karl Popper's famous book on an open society and its enemies. And I saw what was happening, you know, as the Eastern European countries were falling and this sort of the importance and necessity of an open society and the sort of philosophical underpinnings. And even when I was at Harvard, before I came to Yale, I had became more active on campus with trying to foster this understanding that it is important to, to um, engage people you disagree with. And I was getting very worried that already there were things that were not allowable that you couldn't say. And, and that was very concerning to me and sort of to the principles that I had. I'll say one more thing and then I'll shut up, which is this, this other part of my, my um, biography, which is a little bit relevant to this, which is that for many years, I, I practiced martial arts and many listeners will know or will be familiar with the kind of uh, uh, cliche that you know the opponents bow to each other before the match and at the end of the match. Well, why do you do that? You thank your opponent for the, for the learning that you acquire when you spar, right? I mean, that's the whole point. Uh, so, so that kind of philosophy had already been a part of my thinking and I wanted more of that in, in academia. Thank you, Nicholas. Randall. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I've been interested in civil liberties for a long, long time and have always been on the side of uh, you know, openness and uh, been against um, unwarranted censorship. Um, I knew, I've known about uh, the academy, but to tell you the truth, until relatively recently, I wasn't all that concerned. I mean, I have many friends and heroes, looking at Nadine Strassen right now, who for a long time have been, you know, really on the on the ramparts, saying, you know, there's a problem, there's a problem, and to tell you the truth. Until relatively recently, I thought it was being overdone. Um, and that's one of the reasons, frankly, why, you know, I, I sort of kept my distance from the academy. It's, it wasn't out, of, wasn't out of anger, it wasn't out of opposition, but I thought, oh, an, another group, you know, they pick a couple of, 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 of episodes. I mean, we've got, you know, we've got thousands of colleges and universities. You have hundreds of thousands of students. Uh, faculty members in a country this big, of course, things are going to happen. And my sense was that people were making too much out of these episodes. Well, um, I think I was complacent. And um, I, in the, I'd say in the last two or three years, I've become very alarmed um, and have, you know, changed, I've, I've changed my mind. I think that there really is a big problem. And I look forward to our discussion and I look forward in the future to being involved with the Academy because I do think that we really have um, a, a difficulty that's staring us uh, in the face and that it's gonna, it's gonna take some fancy footwork. It's gonna take some real persistence and some real thinking to try to push our intellectual life, our scholarly life to a higher level. Thank you, Randall. That's the perfect segue for Jeffrey Yu to come in because I remember reading your piece, which was, there is no free speech crisis on, on campus, which then led to the conversation with John. So can you reflect a little bit on your journey um, with regards to these issues? 
Absolutely. Thank you, Amna. Uh, this really is an illustrious panel. And um, obviously, in terms of CV, I feel very much out of place. But I'm happy I'm here uh, because I do feel like uh, in some ways I'm more representative of the average academic right now in at least two respects. Uh, first of all, um, I, uh, I'm, I'm way off in a, in a small college. I'm a contingent faculty member. Um, and I think it's important for heterodox to stay grounded in the reality that a lot of academics face, which might not necessarily uh, look like the experience of faculty uh, in R1 universities or tenor tracked faculty. But in another respect, I also think I'm representative uh, of, of many academics. And that is that at least initially, I was skeptical of, of Heterodox Academy and of what it sought to accomplish. Um, and I really came at it with, um, at least initially, a sour taste in my mouth uh, because of some own experiences here in my own university, which I won't get into, but did involve uh, a, uh, a, a free speech controversy in which a member of our university was engaging objectively inappropriately, but clothed his actions in the language of viewpoint diversity. Um, what I think I came out of that with was a deep suspicion of viewpoint diversity and of heterodox as just one more in this ever expanding constellation of organizations that used terms like free speech, like academic freedom as a kind of Trojan horse to uh, inject certain ideas or values uh, and wage a culture war on the academy. There's no need to name names about those sorts of groups. I'm sure we all have uh, our own list in mind of, of, of organizations that don't necessarily have the values of the academy uh, and, and the, uh, the, 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 the goodwill of the academy in their hearts. But one thing I, I've increasingly come to realize that heterodox is not among them. Heterodox does care deeply about the academy. I really can't pinpoint the exact moment when that realization happened for me. I think in part it was through my interactions with John and Sean, getting to know both of them personally and seeing how sincere they were in both their affection for the university and its mission, and also how genuine their concern was uh, for the challenges that it's currently facing. That kind of um, personal relationship and that kind of exposure to their, their data and their argument really has persuaded me that there are problems. While I'm probably not as alarmed as it sounds uh, Randall uh, might be, and uh, perhaps many in the audience are, that initial skepticism I have um, is more or less a thing of the past. And in terms, especially of heterodox, um, I think its value is apparent to everybody. And that's why I'm so thrilled that this, uh, the organization is here and that this meeting can happen. Thank you, Jeffrey. This is really interesting. Um, as I've joined Heterodox Academy and I'm seeing things from the inside, I, I, I watch the critiques that we get and I, and I love engaging with them. And, and some of the critiques are we, are we are the Trojan horse and we are fighting for the alt-right. And then you get the others who say we're not doing enough and we're not advocating enough. And this brings me to an interesting, um, you know, this is a moment to, to talk about Heterodox Academy and what's happening in higher education more broadly, but the work of Heterodox Academy is about, it's the long race, it's slow, sustained change. And that's what I was talking about, that it's not necessarily always visible and it's not about naming and shaming, but to actually have a cultural shift in the way that people are engaging with intellectual questions to reposition and recenter curiosity once again. So let me ask you, all of you, over the past five years, what have you seen on college campuses and how has the climate evolved on your own campuses and what is the impact on open inquiry? So maybe we'll go in reverse order this time. Jeffrey, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the state of your campus in Canada. Well, um, yeah, I mean, Canadian faculties and Canadian universities operate a bit differently than American ones do. Uh, I'm happy to talk more about the structure of academic freedom. Um, unlike, this might not be the moment to do so, I will say that academic freedom, I think, is probably a bit more firmly entrenched and a bit stronger here in Canada than it is in the United States on average. Um, as a result, I don't think we've seen quite the same scale of uh, 
kind of targeted attacks or successful targeted attacks on faculty, um, even adjusting for population that we see in the United States. In terms of students, uh, I think though a lot of the same trends that uh, you know Nicholas was talking about earlier, we have here as well. The same kind of um, you know passionate activism for good or for ill is present here, and uh, I think therefore that a lot of the same concerns that that you guys all have probably are ones that we need to reflect on as well. Randall, one of the things that has really grabbed me in the past couple of years have been the number of instances in which members of faculties of colleges or universities have been uh, subjected to discipline in the, in the following circumstance. Uh, let's imagine a professor who is um, uh, giving a course about the founding of the United States and in order and, and says to students, um, Racism was, you know, there at the founding, you know, racial slavery was a really big deal. And to show you, you know, to really bring that through to you, I'm going to quote something from one of the founding fathers. And the professor, you know, just picks, you know, quotes something. What he quotes contains an epithet. The epithet is nigger, that's the epithet. Now, the, the professor, we're not talking about walking down the street. We're not talking about, you know, being in the grocery store. We're talking about somebody in a class who has explained what they're up to and who is quoting something. Um, student doesn't like it reports it, it gets publicity, the leadership of a law school, mind you, uh, apologizes, says this is a very bad thing. Now, I should hasten to add, this is not my law school. I'm, I, I'm a very privileged person. Um, I have not faced and seen this sort of thing at Harvard Law School and would be very surprised if this sort of thing were to happen, but it has happened at other places. And I'm not talking about marginal places. I'm talking about major institutions. And the story that I just told, variations have happened at various places. There's litigation at, uh, well, the place that I was just talking about, by the way, was Stanford Law School. There is litigation going on right now at, at Emory Law School. There was an episode at a uh, college in Minnesota a year or two ago. I mean, these sorts of things, and, and but you know, no regional. We don't. We don't. I'm not. I'm not going to be a you know, uh, be prejudiced regionally in New York City, for goodness sakes, the most sophisticated metropolis, you know, in the United States and a leading institution, advanced institution, a very similar sort of thing happened. And this is the sort of thing that's really sort of changed my mind. Initially, again, I thought, well, you know, things will happen, uh, you know, marginal, you know, this, this was idiosyncratic. I have written now in the last 18 months, I've written any number of affidavits any number of letters uh, with, for, on, on behalf of people, colleagues, colleagues who have been disciplined or under the threat of discipline for the episode that I just mentioned. And of course, I just, you know, that's just one that comes to mind. There are others that are of similar magnitude and that are similarly frankly, egregious. And it's that sort of thing that, um, you know, I find really quite troubling. I mean, this past summer, uh, my, I, I went to Princeton University. I have a tremendous respect for Princeton University, not just respect for it, affection for it. 
And uh, this summer, there was a, a letter that was published. It was signed by hundreds of members of the faculty. One aspect of this letter talked about a demand for a committee that would superintend professors teaching, professors research, professors publication to monitor racism. Well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm an anti-racist, but the fact of the matter is racism is, can be defined in lots of different ways. I've written things that people have said were racist. I certainly wouldn't like being part of a university committee in which I would be called in to, you know, explain this, that, and the other about positions that I've taken. It's fine, you know, people can criticize positions I've taken, but the idea that I would have engaged in some sort of heresy because of something of a position I've taken with respect to a public policy, you know, that is truly antithetical to what university life should be about. And it's those sorts of things that have caused me to be quite concerned and want to be much more involved and, and feel that I have to be involved actually, I wanna be involved in uh, an effort to um, look into these questions and, uh, you know, raise consciousness, frankly. Thank you, Randall. I think you, you bring up a really good point about, and I'm really glad you've brought up the point about what are the kinds of words we can now use within our classrooms. And as a historian, if we cannot quote primary documents, which use some very problematic language, which is problematic today, but not at that time, for the purposes of analysis, for precisely the purposes to learn how to critique it and how to think about it and how to contextualize it, then it really interferes with the entire project of learning and teaching. Um, Nicholas, can you give us your thoughts on this? I was not surprised by some of the quickening pace of these things. Um, in 2015, after our own you know, experience walking into a propeller, although to be clear, even before that, when I was still at Harvard, we we had come to the defense of so, uh, some students that were uh, uh, using satire to criticize uh, certain uh, elite organizations on that campus. And the satire was misunderstood as being literal. And the students were being attempted to be ferreted out and, and punished for this. Uh, it was clearly satire. Uh, and so we have a long history of the, these commitments. But I began to see things that were very concerning to me. Um, I had a conversation with uh, Jonathan Holloway, the then Dean at Yale College uh, in 2015. And I said, you know, we're gonna come to the time when we're not gonna be able to show students in the classroom, the photographs of the lynchings in the South, those, those brutal, vile photographs that are such powerful historical documents that these would be seen as unacceptable. And I said, and we're also, I said, I'm very worried that we'll have to remove things from our collections at museums because people will be walking through a museum and see something they don't like. And Jonathan said, oh no, that's never gonna happen. But of course that is beginning to happen. We are seeing cases like this where not just, not just oral language, but visual images, people wanted to, reputable organizations who should know better. We had this um, African-American artist in Cleveland that put up these, um, uh, very critical of police violence, these paintings, and other activists saw these paintings and were offended by them and demanded that the paintings be removed from public view. The museum immediately caved, which it absolutely should not. You, you don't have to put up the show, but once you put it up, you absolutely should not cave when someone demands that you take it down. And the activist was astonished. I'm sorry, the painter was astonished. We've had many of these cases. There's a famous um, African-American ethnographer, Elijah Anderson at, uh, at Yale. His book was assigned in a sociology class at Brown and students in the class, I don't remember the race of the students, it's not relevant, were offended by his descriptions of what he had seen and called the professor to account for assigning one of the premier ethnographers of the inner city of our time right now, who happens also to be African-American, assigning his writing. You know, these cases just you know, kept coming at me at, at elite institutions. And also another thing, which was this conflation, the, the case at, um, 
of my colleague Ronald Sullivan at, at Harvard, which was, I mean, lawyers, the, our whole system of jurisprudence depends on lawyers defending people. We, we need lawyers to defend even unsavory people. It's how the system works. And it's abundantly clear that a lawyer defending someone doesn't mean they agree with the person. You're not guilty of murder if you defend a murderer. And uh, this, this conflation that somehow Ronald Sullivan would be tainted by representing an unsavory defendant, you know, it just... I, I, I couldn't believe it. At our most elite institutions, what struck me is very sloppy thinking. And, and ultimately, from my perspective, an abrogation of the duty of the faculty to help the students. And I think this is a little bit, this also reflects, to call it Maoist is too strong, you know, maybe with a small m. My, the students at these institutions are my moral equal. They are human beings. They deserve to be treated with respect and seriously. But they are students. I mean, we are the faculty, that's why they come here. We have a different obligation. And I think our obligation is to help the students to see that these arguments that they are making that defending someone uh, makes you guilty by association is wrong, is not logical, and is not in keeping with the traditions of our society. Of course, that's a very difficult argument to make. It requires strength on the part of the faculty, confidence, solidarity on the part of the faculty, and administrative leadership, right, that says no, you're calling for this person to be fired. Not only will I not fire them, but let me tell you why you're calling for them to be fired for what they're saying or their performance. You know, what if someone was calling for an obstetrician to be fired because they had performed an abortion, right? I mean, that's what obstetricians in part, some of them have this obligation. We don't, or a stem cell biologist working on stem cells that came from aborted fetuses. They should, someone could call for them to be fired. I mean, this is not a logical way to approach discourse on campuses. So I saw many of these cases. Now, they're not all inflected with race and gender, just to be clear. There are other cases happening right now with the COVID pandemic when people are calling for faculty members to be fired because, for example, they have heterodox views, I think wrong views, you know, factually wrong views about the pandemic. But clearly that we should not be firing faculty because they are espousing ideas about the pandemic that I don't agree with. That's not the right way to proceed. From my perspective, I'll, I'll say two more, two more things I just wrote down here. Actually, three more things. One is, from my desk, I see a lot of self-censorship. I see students not saying things in classrooms all the time. And I'm very worried about this because I believe uh, that righteous social progress, the kind of progress I would like to see in our society, which is more progressively tinged, more left-wing, but that's my politics, I think that comes from having the students talk to each other. The only way they're going to learn is if they actually see another person who says, you know, I disagree with you on this, and this affects me personally even, although that's not the strongest argument, but they can say that, and they force the students to talk. The last trend I'm seeing that's very concerning to me, and I don't know if others are observing this, is the increasing use of retraction as a kind of censorship. So a paper is published after it goes through peer review, it's published, maybe it has some demerits, some methodological demerits, maybe it doesn't, but it makes some claims that are seen as dangerous. And people are calling for these papers to be retracted, to be disappeared, not, I read this paper, I disagree, which is from my perspective, the way science advances, here's why I disagree, I repeated your experiments, you were wrong, whatever, instead, we're going to disappear the paper, we're going to retract it. And, uh, and mark my words, we're going to see more and more of this sloppy conflation of retraction uh, as a means to redress issues of fraud, right? If I, if, I, if I make up my data, clearly the paper should be retracted. But if I in good faith perform my experiments or my analyses, and I find a finding that you don't like, the solution is for not for you to call for me to retract my paper. The solution is for you to publish a critique or redo the experiments. So I see lots of these things happening right now and I remain very concerned for the well-being of our institutions and frankly for our broader society. Thank you, Nicholas. You bring up two really interesting things. One is this kind of slippage that is happening between people are unable, it seems, to differentiate between when someone is articulating a position, probably, you know, possibly also to take it apart, but that articulation of the position becomes an endorsement of it in people's eyes. And so they're unable to differentiate between someone stating a position and someone actually fighting for it. But the other thing that you've brought up, which is interesting is, you know, we hear a lot of this noise and a lot of these kinds of things. 
Is this something that we're seeing happening purely in elite institutions? Because a lot of those stories that we hear are coming from elite institutions, from top liberal arts colleges, from Ivy Leagues, or is this something, or is the problem broader than that? And um, Nadine, as you, as you speak about what you've seen in the five years um, since Heterodox's uh, foundation, I'd, I'd love it if you could speak to some of these questions. Well, your, your last question was a great segue to a point I wanted to make also building on something that uh, Nicholas talked about, which is self-censorship. Yes, I've observed it anecdotally in my constant uh, touring on the campus lecture circuit, but much more uh, persuasively, uh, there is study after study, including a campus survey that was done by Heterodox Academy this year. To the best of my understanding, that surveyed uh, not only elite institutions, but uh, a, a sampling of colleges. And uh, this summer, the Cato Institute did a study that went far beyond colleges and included uh, the general public because what used to be a campus problem is now morphing into a society-wide problem. FIRE did a recent survey and every single one of these shows that uh, more than 50% of people across the ideological spectrum, students and faculty are self-censoring on the most sensitive and therefore the most important topics, including race and gender and issues of immigration and, and other important, critically important public policy issues. Uh, what I found really disturbing and, and in the, um, the, the survey that was done by Heterodox Academy, the main reason that people, that students gave for self-censoring was fear of offending their fellow students. Interestingly enough, they weren't so fearful of offending faculty members, much less of getting a bad grade, but it's that peer pressure that exerts such a silencing effect. And we have, this is not a new problem. I can't go back quite as far in history as John's first quote, but his last quote, John Stuart Mill. Uh, Mill's On Liberty was completely about the problems of peer pressure, which he saw as having a much more potent suppressive effect than um, ham-handed traditional government censorship. Now, Randy talked a bit about law schools, but I, I really want to drill down on that because until recently, I was, despite my decades of concern, I was holding out hope that law schools might continue to be a last bastion for all of the values of open inquiry and constructive disagreement and uh, ideological diversity uh, and so forth. And that perspective was validated in an excellent essay that was published in Time Magazine uh, three and a half years ago by Heather Gerken, the Dean of the Yale Law School. And at that time, there had been many publicized incidents of um, deplatforming de and um, attacks on faculty members, including uh, on Nicholas at Yale, but not the law school. And Heather made that point very persuasively. She said, you know, you notice all of these incidents, not a single one has occurred at a law school. And there's a reason for that because in the DNA of law school is of course, we have to teach our students different perspectives on issues. They learn not only the majority opinion from the Supreme Court, but also the dissenting opinion and concurring opinions. And if they are going to be effective advocates, they have to learn how to advocate for and against uh, every single issue. The, my mantra for my law students is that they have to be able to articulate and advocate every plausible perspective on all of the constitutional law issues we discussed. They can't possibly understand the law unless they do that. Well, that uh, assurance uh, quickly crumbled as we saw first one, then two, then three. Um, there haven't been a lot, but there have been too many instances on law school campuses of speakers, serious speakers, you know, people with top government positions being shouted down and heckled and law schools capitulating, not meeting out any sanction at all 
to the students who are not only acting completely inconsistently with uh, lawyers' codes of ethics and violating the free speech rights of the, of the would-be speaker, but also violating the right to receive information and ideas on the part of the willing audience members. That has been very disappointing to me. We have seen ham-fisted um, traditional suppression and punishment, as Randy was alluding to, of law professors who are teaching not only primary historical documents, but Supreme Court decisions. One of the most important Supreme Court decisions ever, certainly one of the most important free speech decisions, Brandenburg versus Ohio, lauded all over the world, it happens to involve members of the KKK. And guess what? They use racist rhetoric. Uh, but a very respected, um, you know, wonderful civil rights advocate professor at Wake Forest University was um, forced to abjectly apologize for having had his students read that case with its offensive language. Now, I uh, spoke at a law school recently where um, the dean of the law school uh, actually said to me in discussion, um, that she thought it was appropriate that students never be exposed to words like that. So it's not only the most reviled racial epithet, but words like that. So we are going down a slippery slope and I am very concerned in terms specifically of my students being trained to be effective civil rights lawyers, to be effective uh, prosecutors, I think it is absolutely critical that students confront it. And if they can't confront it in the classroom under our guidance, with our support and contextualization, how in the world are they going to be effective lawyers, effective members of the community? Thank you, Nadine. You know, it's the question of how are they going to be effective members and how are they going to be effective lawyers who are going to advocate reminds me of another incidence that um, I think it was either Jeanisa Gerson's class in at Harvard or one of her colleagues, and she was writing about it, how students felt they were triggered by cases in the rape law class. And as a result, there were professors who stopped teaching particular cases. And if you if you take it to its logical extreme, who is that really hurting? That's actually hurting women who may be the victims of rape who will not have forceful advocates to really plead their case. So I do wonder sometimes that when we think about the sensitivities that we're protecting, who really is being protected in this conversation? Um, would any of the panelists like to comment on that? I'll just make a short comment, which is I'm not surprised that Nadine and Randall are seeing this with a lag because of course, you know, they, they graduated from college and then now they're in law school and medical school. And we're seeing the same kinds of things in medical schools, incidentally. Uh, you know, I for years taught about racial inequities in healthcare, and it's become a very difficult topic to teach, even for someone like me who has 20 years of commitment to actually on the ground practice of redressing racial inequalities in healthcare. It's very hard. So, and, and these people are now gonna graduate into positions as, as junior district attorneys into corporations. We're gonna see more and more of this. And, and that's why I'm concerned for our society and why I do think the faculty of universities have to take responsibility for this and, and act accordingly. Thank you, Nicholas. You know, this reminds me, like I remember when on our campus first some of these conversations started happening. Uh, this is at Carlton College, which is a small liberal arts college in Minnesota. Um, I remember talking to some of my colleagues in the sciences and they were like, well, you know, this is kind of stuff that comes up in humanities courses. It doesn't really affect sciences. We never have these conversations. Um, it's not impinging on my academic freedom in the classroom. And what you've highlighted is that, that that's actually not the case. And now they're beginning to realize it too, that it really affects all of us across the academy, regardless of discipline. And it's seeping into um, how we're having discourse today. I'd just like you to say a couple of words about what you think are the key challenges that we are facing in higher education as we look forward. And perhaps also a little bit on 
where are the key opportunities you feel HXA can make a difference? Where can we intervene? So basically what I'm asking you to do is to advise us um, in a public forum and help us think about how we can be effective. And we'll go with Jeff, would you like to start? Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have I have a, a laundry list of suggestions for, for heterodox, even though I think so highly of it. I think it's doing so many things right. Uh, in terms of, of the, the, the challenges going forward, I don't think that there is any great reason to expect that the polarization politically that's characterized American politics for the last four years is going to end anytime soon, just because uh, there's been a change in administration. I don't think we should expect that to happen. So I think heterodox has a real valuable role to play in uh, defending the academy. Uh, it has established enormous credibility I think with uh, many stakeholders or many people interested in the academy, um, especially I think on the political right and the center. And I think that credibility is going to be of great value to higher education because frankly, I do think that going forward, the more that higher ed is kind of sucked into this vortex of the culture war, the more education polarization that we see in our politics, I think that higher education is really going to be uh, in a defensive crouch in terms of finances and funding, in terms of legislation regarding academic freedom. If you, if you go on to Inside Higher Ed or the Chronicle of Higher Education, every day now you will find news of another, uh, another department being axed, another round of layoffs at a university or funding being rolled back. It's a dangerous time and the fact that it's such a politicized environment around higher education means that uh, we need organizations like Heterodox to step up. That will mean, I think, forcefully defending in somewhat the way that I think FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education does, defending academic freedom and free speech from all sides of the spectrum. And in that sense, I think uh, there's an opportunity for, for, for Heterodox to expand the kind of orbit of what it does. That's, that, that's, that's one thing I wanted to say. The other thing I guess I kind of want to encourage Heterodox Academy to do going forward is to broaden the scope of what it's trying to do analytically. I think one of my, my concerns and maybe critiques about Heterodox is that it is overwhelmingly focused on the academy. Duh, that makes sense. Of course, it's, it's interested in, in the academy. But I think that many of the trends that we are seeing in terms um, of maybe ideological, uh, the disproportionate presence of people on the left hand of the spectrum in the academy, we are seeing a very similar trend in many other countries and in many other professions, especially those that are disproportionately urban, that are disproportionately high earning and are uh, you know, professional or white collar positions. Um, if you look at uh, the data that we have on um, partisan donorship, we know that uh, it's something about maybe 20 to 40 to one in terms of favoring the Democrats in the 2018 and 2016 elections. Professors give overwhelmingly from their pocketbooks to Democrats. So that give, tells us something that there is a real potential lack of viewpoint diversity in the academy. The thing is we see a similar proportion or disproportion in many other similar professions in high tech, in, uh, in, in law, um, in, uh, in um, entertainment, in, uh, in uh, computer and, uh, and high tech computer media. Uh, there's a whole list of them. I think that should tell us something about the nature of this problem. So that maybe what is causing this disproportionate, almost liberal hegemony or liberal dominance as some people describe it, might not have its roots in something specific to the structure of the academy or the nature of graduate training. It might be a much more complex and uh, a story, one with longer term causes and broader dynamics. I think heterodox will always be presenting an incomplete picture if it focuses exclusively or maybe even overwhelmingly on the academy. I think we need to think about this larger dynamic going on. Thank you, that's very helpful um, and gives us plenty to 
think about, like I said, you've been one of the most constructive critics and it's lovely to actually engage and really dig our teeth into how we can get better at what we're doing. Nadine, would you like to tell us what you think? Well, I think that heterodox has made such enormous strides in such a short time. I'm very encouraged about uh, prospects for uh, future growth by one of the surveys that was done, which showed that 77% of people support the mission statement of Heterodox Academy, but only 8% have actually heard of it. So to me, that's low-hanging fruit in terms of increasing the membership. Heterodox Academy has put out tremendous resources, but I think that they are uh, not nearly as well known as they should be. And here I use myself as an example. Uh, when I was invited to be on this panel, I leaped at the opportunity because I said, this is going to give me the impetus to really knuckle into the website and look at some of these fantastic resources, which are, to me, most excitingly available now, not only for uh, post-secondary education, but now that there's a K through 12 program, and I think that's really an important area for, for future expansion because it's too late. I mean, well, I suppose it's never too late, but it's never too early either. And I think it's really wonderful to start integrating the heterodox way and mission at the, at the earliest ages. In terms of unique problems that we're facing in this COVID era, as I've already said to you, Amna, I'm really concerned about something that I have not seen uh, any organization really grappling with in the serious way that needs to be. And that is what we're all doing right now. We're Zooming. And Zoom and other similar panels are now uh, absolutely critical, essential infrastructure for everything we do that's related to the academy, from classrooms to outside speakers to student meetings, you name it. Uh, and yet it has come to light recently that Zoom has the power contractually to uh, cut off certain speakers or certain events for any reason or no reason. There have recently been incidents where uh, there is some basis to believe that it was um, ideological disagreement, disapproval of speakers. Zoom said that that led to events being canceled, including ironically then events that at, at universities that were protesting the cancellation. So an anti-censorship event was censored, if you will, to me, it's an eerie convergence of two major issues of concern to me in the recent past that I thought were disconnected. Uh, two major areas where free speech is embattled. One is on campuses and the other is online uh, technological platforms. And now the two have come together. Uh, and I think we really need to mobilize to either pressure these platforms to honor the values that that we hold essential for the university or if they're not going to do it to encourage the formation of another online platform that will do that we nadine this that was fantastic and you know we are at a particular moment where i feel like in higher ed there is this convergence there's the impact of covid there's the impact of trying to disseminate and continue these conversations online and the threats that are being posed over there. And then there are the general kind of threats that are in due to the context we're in, the times we're in, the cultural shifts, which um, Jeffrey was talking about. So you bring up a fascinating point, Nadine, and thank you for sharing that. Nicholas, may I turn to you? I don't have anything to add to this. I just wanted to mention that uh, I don't the, just I mean, most of the listeners know this, but the threats are not only, you know, from the left, they're also from the right. You know, so we have lots of speakers saying defund the police or 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 very, for example, pro-Palestinian comments are often. And then you get either government actors outside the university or sometimes inside universities trying to punish people for doing these things. There have been a whole spate of these cases. So, you know, those are equally uh, concerning. I don't have much else to add to that about what heterodox should do, except the one suggestion, which is that there, I wish there were some kind of strike team so that university presidents and deans, when there is a kerfuffle on their campus, someone could reach out to that person and stiffen their spine and say, look, here's a playbook. First of all, slow down. Don't feel obliged to rush to denounce until you get some basic facts. You know, have, have some kind of due process. Second, you know, 
honor your commitments, whatever their foundational commitments. The reason we form principles when, uh, when we're not under threat is so that when we are under threat, we have clarity of thought, right? If you're scared, then you suddenly abandon all your principles. That's not the right strategy. They're, they're principles for precisely for that reason, and so on and so forth. You know, some basic advice that I think would help administrators then to, uh, and also some, frankly, some public support, which even senior administrators, I mean, we ask a lot of university presidents, but, you know, they're human as well. And, you know, I think they also feel like they need public support for their actions. Anyway. Well, I'm delighted to tell you that we've been working on a three-part resource of precisely that, of trying to help and provide advice to executive administrators when such an incident happens um, where someone on their campus is targeted, to the person who's targeted and how to navigate that um, moment because it's this onslaught of, of bile, really, which comes your way. And, and then also uh, providing guidance to colleagues of how you can support when someone is under attack. So stay tuned. We're working on that. Well, I just wanted to say that uh, Penn America uh, already does have something kind of like this. Jonathan Friedman, their campus coordinator, uh, has put together this resource. And I just wanted to toss this out here for any academics in the audience. Uh, this is a great resource for if you find yourself under siege uh, from students, from administrators, or from an outside actor, uh, go to PEN America's website and their campus resource page, and it does provide practical advice. I just wanted to say that really fast, Nicholas, but why don't you... Why you no, I was just going to say one more thing, which is like Randall, and I'm sure like Nadine, and perhaps like you too, Jeff, I get lots of emails from people around the country who are going through different kinds of stressful experiences. I'm familiar, there's a case that, uh, that Greg Lukianov just wrote about, about the conservative guy who took his own life in, 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 uh, in, in a Southern school. But I know another case of a left-wing guy who took his own life and under the social ostracism. And I've spoken to many people, it's very difficult to describe how powerful a feeling it is to be widely denounced, especially wrongly so, especially to have people uh, say things about you that are are false and that are not correct and have large numbers of people denounce you. This is, you know, from time immemorial, this was a form of social ostracism was a grave punishment. And I've heard from many, many academics, I would say a dozen in the last three years, who've written to me in, a, in almost a weepy kind of, uh, it's suicidal uh, frame of mind. And it's important for us to understand how stressful it is to feel you have you're all alone and that everyone thinks you're awful and is publicly denouncing you uh, i know one case of a person who couldn't go to his local grocery store other members of the community in order to elevate themselves saw fit to denounce this man while he was shopping for food wrongly i mean they were wrong in what they were saying uh you know it is a very difficult burden to bear and i think i think um it is right for us to hold people to account who who think they're being virtuous when they're all they're doing is stealing reputation from someone else. Very well said. Randall. I'd like to make three points about, um, about the academy and maybe how it can advance its, its mission and, and, and help people like me. The first point I'm going to start off. I'm going to I'm going to make by by quoting from the 2020 annual report of the Academy. It's under a section called the Heterodox Way, and and here are a couple of sentences from the Heterodox Way. Colleges and universities are not public squares in the traditional sense, but rather sites for the production and dissemination of knowledge. Consequently, we do not encourage free expression or viewpoint diversity as absolute goods, as ends to themselves, but rather as instrumental goods to help us gain a better understanding of the world. The lines of what is acceptable, what is not, which views are valuable and which are not, these are difficult questions. We prize pluralism and we value constructive disagreement. Now, what I like about those three sentences is that they point us to 
a difficulty. Um, the word openness has been a word that's been used over and over and over again since we've gathered together here over the past hour, openness. But these sentences also include the idea of boundaries. And I think that's very important because it's not, you know, it, it, these three sentences suggest to us that much of what we have to grapple with is in the form of dilemma. It's not simple. It's not, you know, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, they have nothing to say, we're always right. No, 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 it's, it, 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 we've got some complication here. There are some boundaries. If somebody, you know, if, if somebody wants to come to the campus and give a talk on um, how in fact the world is flat and the university says, well, thank you very much, but you know, no. Is that, is that illegitimate censorship? No. I mean, so, and, and of course that's, you know, that's, that's the easy case, but we could walk it and get more and more difficult. My, my point is, I think that the academy would do us good in making us grapple with dilemmas and make us grapple with the problem of boundaries. At what point do we draw a line and maybe the people in this gathering right here disagree about that line. And we ourselves find us, you know, we, we find ourselves on different sides of that line. And then we have to argue about where that line is being drawn. I think that that would actually be a good thing. Second, and this is a question I, for me, I'd like help with. How do you avoid becoming tendentious, obnoxious, censorious, dogmatic when contending with people who are tendentious, obnoxious, censorious, <laughs> and dogmatic? That's a real issue. Because if we are in a, a, a context of contention and we are in a fight, we are in a struggle. Well, I mean, if I'm in a fight, if I'm in a struggle, I'm going to struggle. I'm going to fight. Well, um, I want to win. How do I go about winning and not myself becoming demagogic? How do I not myself become censorious? How do I prevent myself from becoming the flip? of my opposition. It seems to me that that's a, that's a real issue. Third, I would like to um, say that my, my third point is something that I hope that the Academy will continue to do. Um, when I was preparing for this, and like I said, I've, you know, I've, I, I've had a generally, you know, generally favorable impression of the Academy, but not, you know, it's not like I was very, I knew a whole lot. So I'm thumbing through the annual report and I think it's on the second page that there is a list of people who are associated. When I went down that list, it made me much more attracted to the organization. So on this page, you had on the one hand, you know, Glenn Lowry, politically, you know, very much, you know, you know, the rightward side of things. You had Cornell West, you know, very much on the leftward side of things. And then you had a group of people of various sorts, various places, you know, with various interests. And it seemed to me that that really sort of brought home to me the idea that, yep, these were folks who truly are united in their love for universities, 
to echo something that was said at the very outset. And I think that in, you know, in your governance, it will really behoove you to continue that. Because, you know, I mean, we, we, we don't know, there's, you know, we can't know about everything. We all use proxies for various things. And the people that you associate with, you know, they're, they're important proxies. And I think that the presentation of the organization, um, we, are, we are aware of difficulties. We are aware of dilemmas. We don't all agree. We disagree and sometimes we disagree very strongly. I think that that's good. I think that we have to, I think it's a, it's a useful thing to say that too is part of intellectual life, scholarly life. There is gonna be disagreement. Let's show how disagreement can happen. And let's show how we can have productive disagreements such that at the end of the evening, the people who were contestants, maybe they both go from the occasion feeling better and in fact instructed through their contest. Professor Randall Kennedy. Thanks to Nicholas Christakis, Nadine Strawson, Randall Kennedy, and Jeffrey Sachs for a most stimulating and fascinating conversation. This is a special edition of Half Hour of Heterodoxy. I'm Amna Khalid. Thank you for listening.